Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Nicholas Lorimer, your host, and this is the Daily Friend Wrap. I'm joined today by Sarah Gon. Today's news stories, we're going to cover uh, the credible explosion in solar power across the country. We're going to talk a little bit about the ANC and Zuma. And we're going to finish off by talking about yet more trouble in the Middle East. So just any apologies if you hear hardy dars or thunder or rain or anything like that. Uh, There's quite a lot of noise going on on both our ends here. But uh, let's get into our first story of today, and that is the enormous expansion in solar power that uh, private households have and and, and businesses have installed over the last year. So the amount of uh, solar power installed doubled in 2023, which is obviously you know, quite a significant amount. It jumped from 2.6 gigawatts to 5.2 gigawatts in the space of a year. Now, that's an interesting figure because that means that all of the sort of private solar in the country, um, as ESCOM describes it, behind the meter solar power is now more than any single power plant in the country. Even the big coal power stations like Madupi and Kasile um, are, are producing only, I think, around 4.8 gigawatts of power, which is a lot. Um, but but it, this, I think, shows something very interesting about South African society and its ability to adapt to problems that the state causes or that state failure has caused. In fact, the effect is so significant that Alexander Forbes has increased our expected GDP growth figure um, uh, in 2024 up from 06 uh, to, to one point of last year to 1.2 this year, uh, which is, you know, not a huge jump, but pretty significant. So, Sara, what's your takeaway from this story? I think that this is a really fascinating story in showing how resilient South Africans are. And of course, the more that gets taken, you know, the more power generated by, um, you know, uh, rooftop solar on people's houses, the less strain there is on the grid, which is perhaps one of the reasons why we've started to see load shedding, at least decrease a little bit in recent months well all i can say is that if i could harness the lightning outside we'd really be in the pound seats um, and since i can't but i could get rid of the hardy dolls which i did my comment is that it, it is about the resilience it's also about the um it's 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 a it's the resilience it's the it's it's the sign that this the private sector can actually um, essentially, despite all the pressures on it and all the government's best efforts to make life difficult, it can actually make a difference. Now, if one could get excess power onto the grid, you know, at the right time, accepting that solar power is limited, if like now when the clouds roll over, um, the I mean, I would have thought, and, and this is showing my technical, my lack of technical expertise, that it is exactly that sort of inability to store power where the private sector and ESCOM could really best cooperate in, you know, right. So, in, in, I mean, in, in filling gaps. There, there, there are definitely some gap, gaps. Of course, the story that we're taking this from in News Twenty Four actually talks a little bit about. The, uh, the the big fluctuations in how much power is produced and how much demand there is on the ESCOM system every time there is a lot of cloud over the country because, of course, uh, solar, solar doesn't work so well then. Um, at the same time, there's also the fact that uh, at 
peak and sunset, the, the the sort of peak times when most electricity is being used is just as people are waking up and getting ready for work, and as people come home and cook supper. Um, and and uh, those are times when you know there isn't really strong sunlight. So there are of course battery systems that many of these solar powered households do have, but they're just not always quite enough to provide the things that people need from a power system. Um, and of course they can be pretty expensive as well and need to be replaced over time. So this certainly isn't a foolproof solution to the problem, but I think it does show that one of the reasons why South Africa, you know, there's been many portents of doom about South Africa for a long time now due to government failure. And yet South Africa still manages to sort of keep going on. And I think a big part of that reason is because when there are problems caused by state failure, South Africans as a whole are very good at stepping up to the problems and at least mitigating them, finding a solution, getting around them, all that sort of thing. Okay, let's move on to our next story. Uh, And this is about the NEC of the ANC, that's the top uh, uh, decision-making body of the ANC, the National Executive Committee which has decided to suspend Jacob Zuma from the party and has asked, given him, I think, 48 hours, which will be the end of today, I think, uh, to respond to the charges leveled against him. The charges are, of course, relating to um, the fact that he started another political party and has been campaigning for them against the ANC, which is pretty clear grounds for termination of your party membership if you belong to a political party. But uh, it's kind of interesting to me that the ANC took so long to get to this. Um, What was interesting is one of the quotes uh, that that the media picked up on this from someone who is on the ANC ADC is one of the reasons they didn't want to expel him allegedly is because uh, he would just tie up the disciplinary process with the same style and grass strategy that he uses for all of his legal troubles. The exact quote from the ANC NEC member was, we all know that he will not come to the DC, he will be dilly-dallying and it will waste time. Um, that's quite funny that you know, sort of the ANC seems to be in the same bind that the legal system has been when it regards with regards to Zuma. But Sarah, you had some thoughts that that's maybe not the only reason the ANC hasn't straight up just expelled him. Yeah, no, no. The, the uh, I think look, it took them a month, over a month to get to this point, and apparently they knew in advance of the announcement about the new party that you know they knew about it. So. It was announced, and over a month later, they've they've done something about it. Good grief! Um, I think the real reason has to do with trying to s- cut the baby in half, suspend him because he should be suspended, uh, but don't fire him until after the election, which is what they have said. Because they, I'm sure, they're terrified that if they fire him, it will just give grist to his mill and you know possible violence in in KZN. But my favourite thing was that. The ANC actually, according to report, the ANC actually hoped that they wanted his branch in Kandla to suspend him, but they couldn't because the branch is in not in good standing. That, need I say more? Yes, that does definitely say something about the level of the ANC's um, structures, which once were very formidable in their ability to sort of influence the country's political scene. But I think this suggests there's been some decay. Yeah, uh, it, it remains to be seen. I think um, I think you're right in saying that the ANC is at least a little bit hedging its bets here. But it also shows, I think, the sort of inertia in the organization mm-hmm. that they have someone who is very clearly trying to harm the party leadership and the party as a whole. And yet they still actually can't just expel him. 
um, even Look when now. it's almost asserted decidedly in their in their sort of long term interests. But uh, anyway, we shall we shall see what comes of this. Um, I suspect that z despite all the fury and the noise, that Zuma's MK party will perhaps not be as impactful as people think. I, I did see a story, however, that there were a number of religious leaders in some part of KZN who said that if uh, the MK party doesn't get 51% of the vote, they're going to, what is it, riot or something, I don't know, it was something, some sort of threat of violence, which I thought was, well... Well, they sound like real shysters. Yeah, you better get your rioting shoes on because he's not going to get 51% of the vote. <laughs> uh, anyway, let's go on to our last story, and this is overseas, of course, um, since the, the massacre in Israel on October 7th last year. There has been a lot of turmoil in the Middle East as Israel and Gaza fight each other, as the Houthis, or Ansar Allah, as they call themselves, in Yemen have been attacking shipping in the Red Sea. There's been increasing tensions between Iran, the United States, Israel, and other countries in the region. And the whole thing is feeling increasingly like a tinderbox that could go up, go up at any minute. Um, the chances of this were somewhat increased recently when uh, Iranian proxies, which have launched, I think, over 50 attacks on U.S. forces around the region, finally managed to kill some American service members. Three U.S. service members were killed and at least 34 wounded in a drone attack by Iranian-backed militants at a base in Jordan, uh, where the U.S. is allowed to maintain a military base by the Kingdom of Jordan. Um, the Americans have promised that they will respond at a time and place of their choosing but it's a little bit unclear precisely what their initiative is. Um, the Americans did, after a lot of provocation from the Houthis of firing on U.S. military ships and also commercial shipping in the Red Sea, did finally respond and strike them in Yemen. Um, but the U.S. seems to have been playing this pretty cautiously. Sara, what do you make of this? Well, I mean, I can understand why the, U why the U.S. wouldn't want to start a shooting match with Iran. But the problem is, is that everything the... Biden administration's done since it went back into the so-called arms uh, nuclear agreement um, is it showed extraordinary weakness. I mean, it would be interpreted by the Iranians as extraordinary weakness. And I'm not sure if the diplomatic classes in America yet understand that Iranian culture, like much of the Middle East, is going to look at this stuff in terms of weakness, and is going to keep probing it, a bit like a bully in a schoolyard, until you hit back. And I don't know when that point is, if that point has been reached. Um, you know, the, you, you, can't, you can't sort of have your military ready on the basis of what you think your opponent's going to do. You've got to assess where your opponent's coming from and be ready immediately. And frankly, Russia and Iran, you know, you're not going to start the war with them. They're going to start the war with you. It certainly seems that way based off of what's happening. So we'll obviously have to keep an eye on the story because obviously the U.S. is probably going to strike back against Iranian proxies. Whether they'll actually hit anything in Iran or anything that belongs directly to the Iranian state is another question. Um, and I think that will be a determinant of how this thing sort of goes forward. But anyway, that's all the time we had for today. We hope that you found this interesting and we will... Be back tomorrow with the Daily Friend Wrap. Cheers, everyone.